This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest mining trade show. See thousands of new products and services at the Las Vegas Convention Center from September 28th to 30th. Registration is now open, so visit MineExpo.com to register. You don't want to miss this opportunity. Welcome to episode number 175 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and there is so much going on. There is the coronavirus. There is the PDAC, which is this weekend, and they have issued a statement on the coronavirus, so we will read that shortly. As well, tech has walked away from the Frontier Oil Sands project. That is a really big deal in Alberta. Tex is one of these companies that basically mines oil. They just had a conference call as well, but rather than, I listened to that conference call, but I also listened to the Cameco conference call, and we have to look at the Cameco conference call today. It is a great conference call. Tim Gitzel is an excellent speaker, and what he has to say about the uranium industry, about Cameco's vision, and it's right in the middle of the ESG discussion that they place it for a clean air energy future. And so we're going to take a look at that as our feature content. Yeah, Tim Gitzel, he goes into all of it, and he also goes into the uranium market. And Cameco's special strategy of buying up supplies in the spot market while leaving their tier one mine assets idle. So not all of them, but some of them. So a very interesting strategy, which they've been doing for a year or two at least now. It wasn't a surprise to me hearing that. I remember them talking about it, but they continue. And he has some very interesting things to say about the uranium market. So that is coming up. And of course, we have the Mining Person of the Year, the Northern Miner Mining Person of the Year. Well, we have started to announce that during PDAC in the last few years or right before PDAC. So we're also going to get into that. Yeah, so just a ton going on. Uh, the YMP, Young Mining Professionals, they have their YMP awards on February 29th at the Shangri-La Hotel. Just go to at YMP Toronto on Twitter, and you may still be able to buy a ticket for that. Yeah, so a ton to get to. But before we do, we have a new product, the On The Move newsletter. And it is basically a newsletter that gives updates on executive management and board changes in Canada's mining sector. It's a very good looking publication. I think everybody at the Northern Miner and Canadian Mining Journal and Mining.com are quite proud of it. It's a joint effort. It's a joint venture, as we might say. And uh, yeah, if you want to take a look at that, uh, just go to the Northern Miner homepage. And on the left, right below the second ad on the left, on the left-hand sidebar, you will see the On The Move newsletter. Just click on that. It takes a second to load, but then you can either download a PDF or scroll through it. 
And yeah, that should take you to the Canadian Mining Journal website, which you should also check out. I mean, they have a bit of a different spin. They do a lot of engineering and supplier news, but they also do regular mining news as well. And they are a sister publication. So do check out Canadian Mining Journal. I think it's Canada's oldest mining publication. And actually, and if you go to our Instagram, I just tweeted out a picture of the founder, Mr. Bell, and he can be seen right on our Instagram page. So where to begin? We're going to start with the Northern Miner Person of the Year. Then we're going to turn to some coronavirus stories that relate to the metals markets. And there are some interesting moves in lithium and uranium. And then we're going to have metal prices. And then we're going to turn to this Camco conference call, which is fascinating. So all this and more is coming up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. If you want to find us on Twitter, it's at Northern Miner. If you want to find us on Instagram, it's at The Northern Miner. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and LinkedIn. And you can also find these podcasts wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. So we're everywhere. So with that, let's turn to the news. And before we turn to the website, I just wanted to turn... First, to this PDAC statement on the coronavirus, they have a statement, Health and Safety 2020, Coronavirus, COVID-19, the health and safety and well-being of attendees is our top priority. We are paying close attention to direction from the World Health Organization, Public Health Agency of Canada, and Toronto Public Health on the specifics of the novel coronavirus COVID-19. At this time, there are no programming changes scheduled for PDAC 2020 convention, and it will continue as planned. We will provide further updates to attendees and participants accordingly. They also add what to expect on site. In addition to regular health and safety procedures, the following additional procedures will be implemented at PDAC 2020. Increased cleaning and disinfection of all high-volume touch points, including registration touchscreens, surface areas, handrails, washrooms, door handles, microphones, etc. Increased availability of alcohol-based hand sanitizer and signage reminding attendees of hygiene recommendations. We continue to monitor the situation closely and will adapt plans accordingly. And they also have some healthy travel practices, which include washing your hands, covering nose and mouth while coughing, Stay up to date on vaccinations, avoid close contact with anyone showing symptoms of respiratory illness, and avoid touching eyes, nose, and mouth. And they have some links to the World Health Organization. They also have information on the nurse's office. So if you just Google uh, PDAC and Health and Safety 2020, you should get this page. So that is the latest. Everything is on track, but do be safe with your practices. Be responsible. And yeah, so you can get the news there. And with that, let's turn to our our Northern Miner, Mining Person of the Year, Kirkland Lake Gold's Tony McCooch. Tony McCooch, President and CEO of Kirkland Lake Gold, is the Northern Miner's Mining Person of the Year for 2019. Under his leadership, Kirkland Lake Gold rose by 60% last year. It raised its dividend twice and more than doubled its cash position. And in 2019, with $707 million in cash and equivalents, Kirkland Lake Gold operates two of the highest grade gold mines in the world, produced a record 974,615 ounces of gold in 2019, a 35% year-on-year increase, anchored by its Macassa mine in Ontario, Canada, 
and its Fosterville mine in the state of Victoria, Australia. It also produces gold at its Holt complex, a trio of mines in Ontario. Consolidated operating cash costs fell 22% year-on-year to only $284 per ounce sold, while all-in sustaining costs declined 18% to $564 per ounce sold. Net earnings jumped 104% year-on-year to $560 million, or $2.67 per share. And free cash flow totaled $463 million, an 81% increase over 2018. Also in January, the company completed the all-share acquisition of Detour Gold, adding Detour's mine in northern Ontario to its portfolio of producing assets and entrenching Kirkland Lake Gold as a senior gold producer. The transaction added 14.8 million ounces of gold in open pit reserves to Kirkland Lake Gold's mineral reserve base and exploration targets within its 1,040 square kilometer land position in the prolific EBTB Greenstone Belt. And just a little background on Tony McCooch. Before taking the helm at Kirkland Lake Gold, he served as president and CEO of Lakeshore Gold from 2008 until the company was acquired by Tahoe Resources in April 2016. Between 2006 and 2008, McCooch was Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for FNX Mining, and between 1998 and 2005, held senior positions at Dynatech. McCooch also worked at Kinross Gold from 1992 until 1998, where his role included General Manager of the company's Kirkland Lake operations at the Macassa Mine and its Timmins operation at the Hoyle Pond Mine. So really a, a life and career dedicated the mining industry. A little quote here, McCooch attributes Kirkland Lake Gold's solid track record to teamwork. The main aspect of our success is that it's 2,500 people working together and building success. It's all of us as a group, everybody trying to help each other. None of us in the company think we're any better than anybody else. We just have different jobs, but we're all focused on the same thing. So congratulations to Kirkland Lake Gold CEO and President Tony McCooch, who is the 2019 Northern Miner Mining Person of the Year, and he joins esteemed company. If you want to find that, just go to northernminer.com. You'll see it about the third or fourth story down. And with that, let's turn to the coronavirus, which is really sucking up a lot of the oxygen. And it's one of those stories that you just get the sense that everybody is kind of wishing away and it isn't going away. And you're starting to see the markets get impacted by it. It's, I, you know, the analogy I keep thinking of is it feels like it's just throwing sand into the gears of the global economy. That's really what this virus feels like. It gets, it's just kind of killing the party and everybody wants to keep partying and it's just killing the party. So... Here we go. So gold is one of the commodities that seems to be impacted by coronavirus fears. Seven straight sessions of gains lifted the gold price. And this is by Frick Ells from Mining.com. Seven straight sessions of gains lifted the gold price to a fresh seven-year high after renewed fears of the coronavirus sent investors scurrying to safe haven assets. The gold price, now this is about three days old. So we're going to get to the current gold price at metal prices, but here, when it was written, the gold price touched a new intraday high of $1,652.10 on the COMEX market in New York, up 2% from yesterday's settlement and the highest level since mid-February 2013. So a significant level was breached there. It's been a while since gold has been this high. 
By midday, trade already hit the highest volume for the year with more than 43 million ounces exchanging hands. Gold bullion is up more than $120 since the start of 2020. There are different ways of measuring fear. I've heard copper, there's Dr. Copper, and there's also uh, bonds, the 10-year bond, and there's also the 30-year bond, and that's also a good measure of fear in the market. And so Frick goes into the 30-year bond here. The yield on the U.S. 30-year bond fell below 1.9% on Friday. I think it fell quite a bit further subsequently. A record low after business activity in the U.S. shrank for the first time in nearly seven years due to the pandemic's disruption of global supply chains and travel. And this global supply chain thing, I mean, Apple came out with their warning. They warned of an iPhone shortage. Like how 2020 is that, an iPhone shortage? This supply chain thing, it's all I, this crisis or epidemic the World Health Organization is not calling it a pandemic yet. They're still calling it an epidemic. I think the effects of it are still being absorbed. I think we're all still trying to figure out what it all means. And that seems to change with every day and every new news story. Again, I think there was a sense of people wishing it away. Uh, but now, as you see with gold here, there is sort of a reality check that's happening. Uh, let's continue here. The IHS... Market Purchasing Managers Index measuring composite output at factories and service providers fell below 50 for the first time since October 2013. Readings below 50 indicate contraction and usually predict broader economic slowdown. And we have a quote here from Nikki Shields, metal strategist at Bank of Nova Scotia. The persistent cold-blooded and measured shift in gold higher, despite the U.S. dollar, is telling. And she said this in an emailed message to Bloomberg News. The breakout is warranted and has legs. Gold hit record highs in 10 major currencies, including the euro, Australian and Canadian dollars, the Indian rupee, and Brazilian real. So this is another very interesting aspect. In a sense, the strength of the U.S. dollar is masking part of the strength in gold because gold is measured in U.S. dollars traditionally. The U.S. dollar is sort of seen as a negative indicator to commodity prices. So if the dollar is strong, commodity prices tend to be lower. And what the Bank of Nova Scotia economist is pointing out is on a strong U.S. dollar, the gold continues to go up. And so this is not usually the correlation that you see. And here we go. The normal negative correlation has broken down, and this has led to some significant gains against most major currency, said Ole Hansen, who is head of commodity strategy at Saxo Bank, adding that gold priced in dollars is the currency furthest away from hitting the 1921 per ounce record from 2011. It is difficult to see what at this stage can halt or pause the rally, Hansen said. So here we go. So gold is pushing higher, and it's maybe even more than we might realize based on the strength of the U.S. dollar. And one more coronavirus story, since it really is, the, I think, the focus here in world news right now. Coronavirus impacts base metals market. This is by Carl A. Williams. And Carl A. Williams is a new reporter, a new senior reporter for the Northern Miners. So we welcome him aboard. Carl describes the numbers surrounding the virus and how it's likely to get worse rather than better. He quotes Wen Yu Yao, a senior commodity strategist at ING in London, and says prices for industrial metals 
have dropped on average by about 10% since the end of January. Because of the massive disruption to logistics and transportation at the local level, not only are copper, zinc, and aluminum smelters running short of raw materials, but they are also experiencing difficulties in transporting finished product, she says in a telephone interview. So supply chains are really starting to get impacted here. Because this is going weeks upon weeks. Like, I mean, this thing first flared up, I think, in late December. And here we are almost at the end of February. And we have another quote from Yao. The price impact has been seen primarily for copper and nickel. Many investors were bullish on these metals before the outbreak, but have now been forced to wind back their positions, which has caused a fall in their prices. According to Scotiabank, at the end of January... The nickel price has fallen to its lowest level for six months, with the copper price dropping well over 10% since December. Zinc prices also continue to fall, albeit at a more moderate rate. Yeah, we've seen this in our metals price section, and we're going to get an update on that shortly. Although prices now appear to be stabilizing, near-term price movements for base metals will continue to be influenced by the impact of the outbreak on China's economic activity. Yeah, this was written on February 20th, so there has been that huge drop in the market yesterday. Carly Williams also quotes Wood McKenzie. Uh, Wood McKenzie has reported that at least half of the country's mines in China are on extended shutdown, and of those that are open, most are not operating at full capacity. China is a crucial player in the copper market and accounts for more than half of global demand. And here's a quote from Haywood Securities' Pierre Vaillancourt. Although there is an expectation that the outbreak is unlikely to impact either copper supply or demand significantly, the copper price is often a bellwether for the state of the global economy, and it's taking a hit at the moment. The London Metal Exchange three-month copper price fell from $6,300 U.S. per ton at the start of 2020 to $5,700 per ton at the end of January. And there's also a reduction in zinc output from Chinese smelters. And it says here it will not only affect the zinc market in China, but will have a knock-on effect on the rest of the world. As China's demand for imported concentrates drops, the world's concentrate supplies will be driven further into surplus, placing upward pressure on zinc spot treatment charges. And it goes on. So as you can see here, there's a lot of havoc uh, being wrecked by this disease. Commodities have been showing it far earlier than the stock market. The stock market seems to have just gotten the memo yesterday. But if you were paying attention to commodity prices, you could tell something was wrong for the last two months. So there we are. That is your coronavirus update. And on to our next story. I just want to touch on this lithium story because I was looking at a lithium ETF. I should really dig out the name of it. But it, you look at the lithium, like, or if you look at a group sort of chart of lithium sh shares, it seems to have bottomed a little bit. That's what it looks like. And so here you get uh, Orocobre is seeking to acquire Advantage Lithium and its Kuchari Lithium Project in northern Argentina in an all-share deal. And they already own 34.7% of Advantage Lithium. And they have signed an agreement now under which Aracobre will acquire all the shares in Advantage Lithium it doesn't already own. And this is by Trish Saywell, the northern miner. And she quotes Matthew O'Keefe, a mining analyst at Cantor Fitzgerald, who says in a research note that the likely path to production is through the Olaraz plant at some time in the future when the lithium market can support more production. With this deal, 
Advantage Lithium shareholders are receiving quality paper from an established lithium producer at a time when lithium prices appear to have bottomed, allowing them to maintain exposure to an expected improvement in lithium prices. Oricabre's Olaros, the newest brine-based global lithium carbonate supplier in more than two decades, has a mine life of more than 40 years based on measured and indicated resources of 6.4 million tons of lithium carbonate equivalent contained in the Salar de Olaros brine, which contains high concentrations of lithium and potash brine. And further, Andrew Barber, Oricabre's chief investor relations officer responded to a Northern Miner email. This will deliver an additional 25,000 tons of capacity, just as demand from European emissions regulations is expected to encourage a shift towards electric vehicles. Also, Barber said that Advantage shareholders will gain exposure to the Olaroz lithium facility that is producing both battery and industrial grades of lithium carbonate. Overhead expenses will also be minimized, which means Advantage shareholders avoid dilution by future capital raises that would otherwise be needed. Shareholders will benefit as we maximize the long-term productive capacity of the world-class Olaroz Kochari basins and gain access to high-quality resources located immediately adjacent to our existing leases. Looks like there are a lot of synergies between both these companies. So Oricabre has decided to make a move. And our final story, Trump administration seeks to boost U.S. uranium production. There's been talk about this for about a year now. It looks like they're getting more serious about it. As part of U.S. President Donald Trump's proposed federal budget for fiscal 2021, his administration is requesting $150 million annually over the next decade to stockpile U.S. mined uranium in a new national uranium reserve. The move is designed to prop up domestic production as a matter of national energy security and reestablish the country's nuclear fuel supply chain. And we have a quote from U.S. Energy Secretary Dan Bruyette. This is the very beginning of a long process to revitalize in many respects the entirety of the nuclear fuel cycle. What you've seen in the president's budget is a request for $150 million to begin the process of purchasing uranium. In addition to the budget for fiscal 2021, it includes $1.2 billion for research and development related to nuclear energy, a 43% increase over the $824 million allocations for R&D in the current fiscal year. So they're ramping up. You can read the rest on the northernminer.com. Uh, but another sort of interesting point here is the U.S. has the largest nuclear electricity generation capacity and generates more nuclear electricity than any other country in the world. And it accounts for 20% of the U.S.'s total electrical power generation, with 96 nuclear reactors operating in 58 commercial power plants across the United States. Some people are seeing this as giving hope to the uranium sector, which has been very challenged in the last 10 years, ever since Fukushima. And yeah, this is, I want to touch on this because it directly relates to our feature content of Cameco Conference Call which features Tim Gitzel, the CEO and president of Cameco. There you have it. Those are our news stories. And now let's take a look at metal prices. prices. I would like to thank our friends at Infomine.com who provide us with these prices each and every week. 
If you ever want to find these prices for yourself, simply put InfoMine and metal prices into Google, and it will be the first result. And on February 25th, gold is at $1,652.02. That is $64 higher than last week. And silver is at $18.43 per ounce. And that is $0.55 cents higher than last week. Platinum is at $965.92 per ounce. And that is $17 lower than last week. And palladium continues to move higher. It is at $2,660.27 per ounce. That is $122 higher than last week. It's been very volatile. I've been watching palladium throughout the week. Uh, it's down, it's up many, like 4% at a time. It's pretty intense, palladium. But yeah, it's a bit of a buying panic over there with palladium. And because uh, if you can't get something, you can't get something. And then people's, yeah. So all very interesting. And our industrial metals on February 21st, copper is a penny lower at $2.59 per pound. Aluminum is a penny lower at 76 cents per pound. Lead is unchanged at 85 cents. Nickel is 27 cents lower at $5.64 per pound. Tin is even at $7.50. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.20. Zinc continues to go lower to 95 cents per pound. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Tim Gitzel, Cameco president and CEO. And I have divided this conference call. Uh, I have taken excerpts and I have divided it into four major areas. And the first is Tim Gitzel on the big picture, the fundamentals of the uranium market. Then we take a closer look at the spot market purchases that Cameco has been doing that I mentioned at the start of the show. They're slightly controversial, as Tim Gitzel points out. And then we also go briefly into their financials and the tax case against them with the CRA, which they appear to be winning. And finally, we have a look at their customers, all these nuclear power plants, and ESG and the whole supply risk surrounding uh, the low price of uranium and how this is creating an unsustainable market dynamic, according to Tim Gitzel. So there you are. I'm going to just chime in uh, to let you guys know at which point we are in the conference call. But otherwise, I will see you on the other side. Well, thank you, Rochelle, and welcome to everyone on the call today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, hard to believe another year has come and gone. In fact, we're into a new decade. And despite the challenges the nuclear industry faced in the previous decade, we continue to believe we have the right vision and strategy for our company. 
So just why do we think we have the right vision and strategy? First, it's because our vision, which is to energize a clean air world, is clearly aligned with the world's growing demand for energy while helping to avoid some of the worst consequences of climate change. And second, it's because our strategy of production discipline, marketing discipline, and patient balance sheet management is working. In 2019, we achieved replacement rate term contracting of 36 million pounds. And we begin 2020 with over $1 billion in cash and negative net debt. Also important is that over the past number of months, we are seeing the other segments of our industry transitioning. As a result, we remain committed to our strategy. I want to remind you of the long-term fundamentals in our industry because they are central to both our vision and our strategy. I think it's an important reminder because as I read analyst and trade reports and watch the resulting day-to-day -day volatility, I fear people are losing sight of the very positive long-term fundamentals for our industry as they are caught up in the short-term noise. Our board and our stakeholders, including employees, communities, customers, governments, and shareholders, expect us to manage this company in a long-term, sustainable fashion. We can't and we won't get distracted by the noise, and we can't and won't lose sight of the underlying long-term fundamentals in our industry. And the fundamentals are really quite simple. Demand is on an upswing, and utilities have a growing wedge of uncovered requirements, precisely at the same time that supply is on a downswing, and today's prices are insufficient to reverse this trend. Our optimism and confidence in a uranium market transition is growing. I'll talk more about this later, but first I want to review our strategy. Our strategy is to take advantage of the long-term growth we see coming by focusing on our Tier 1 assets. It's designed to add long-term value. We've taken a three-pronged approach in the execution of our strategy, operational, marketing, and financial. We have cut production far below our committed sales, which requires we purchase material in order to fulfill those commitments. And we have strengthened our balance sheet to ensure we have the financial capacity to execute on our strategy and self-manage risk. So why is this our strategy? It's because we're optimistic about the drivers of long-term growth in our industry. There is increasing recognition by policymakers and some environmental groups that nuclear power will be an indispensable tool for addressing what is being referred to by many as the climate change crisis. And we recognize that today's low price is creating tomorrow's opportunity for us. The fact that we have Tier 1 production shut down tells us this market needs to transition to ensure those pounds will be available to fuel growing demand. The market needs to transition to one where price is set by the production cost curve. And with that, we have the opening of the conference call. And now we're going to turn to the issue of the spot market and Cameco buying uranium off the spot market while shuttering or suspending some of their tier one mines and that whole strategy. So here it is. Let's talk more specifically about our strategic actions, including our spot market purchases. First, let me be clear, we continue to do what we said we would do. Our operational decision to reduce production well below our committed delivery volumes requires us to be active on the demand side. 
In other words, we have to purchase material on the spot market. There's a lot of speculation and, in fact, some skepticism and criticism about our activity in the spot market. As some market participants try to capitalize on our need to buy material, this speculation, skepticism, and criticism won't deter us. We won't disclose exactly when and how much we're going to purchase annually. Why? To allow us to be more flexible and nimble in the market and to allow us to capture more gross margin. Although we won't tell you exact volumes and timing of our purchases, we will share with you the purchasing framework we're using. Remember, our goal is to buy as cheaply as possible in order to maximize our gross profit. This means we have to adjust our purchasing activity to what we see in the market. Let me use 2019 to illustrate. In 2019, we said we plan to purchase a total of between 21 and 23 million pounds to meet our deliveries and maintain our desired inventory. Not all of this purchasing was spot material, but a large portion of it was. In total, we purchased 19 million pounds of uranium, more than double what we produced, but a bit lower than the outlook we provided. Given we made all of our delivery commitments, you may wonder how we bought less than planned. Well, we drew down our inventory. Why did we wait to buy some material and temporarily draw down on our working inventory? Because it made sense to do that. As I said earlier, we saw some signals in the market that required us to adjust our approach to purchasing. We are willing to be patient. If others want to go out and sweep the cupboards for material, we will let them bring it to the market, where we will buy it as cheaply as possible. This is entirely consistent with what we said we would do, that is, to responsibly manage our supply to meet our sales commitments. This does not change the overall quantum of purchasing required, just the timing. And let me be clear, neither does it represent a departure from our strategy. We have been upfront about the potential for variability in our sales volumes, our production, our purchases, and our inventory. These are planned departures from the outlook we provide because they make sense and they benefit our margins. We will plan our activities to ensure we meet our delivery commitments, but they are not constrained by quarterly or annual deadlines. We make business decisions based on our first-hand knowledge and experience. If we start to see end-user demand in the spot market and signals point to more expensive pounds tomorrow, we will not only advance our purchasing activity, we may actually build a bit more inventory to ensure we have the material where we need it, when we need it, and in the right form. Ultimately, with MacArthur River Key Lake on care and maintenance and production well below our sales commitments, we still have a lot more purchasing ahead of us than behind us. And next, we're going to turn to the financials and particularly the CRA tax case, uh, Canadian Revenue Agency tax case, which was actually quite a news story for these guys, for Cameco. And so it sounds like they've got it sorted out. sounds like they actually won. And I don't think you ever win against the CRA. So they must have some pretty good lawyers. As you'll hear here, they're pretty expensive, but there's an appeal. So it continues. And here it is. We were also active on the financial front in 2019. In September, we retired $500 million of debt, or one-third of our debt outstanding. In addition, we extended the maturity date of our revolving credit facility to November 2023 while also reducing it by $250 million. It now sits at $1 billion and remains undrawn. As well, Inkai repaid its outstanding loan with us and therefore began distributing cash dividends. These two items added over $100 million U.S. to our cash balance. 
As a result of the strategic actions we have taken, as I noted earlier, we have about $1.1 billion in cash on our balance sheet. The debt on our balance sheet sits at about $1 billion with maturities in 2022, 2024, and 2042. So our balance sheet is strong. We have the financial result to execute on our strategy and the ability to self-manage risk. And we believe the risk related to our CRA tax case has diminished based on the unequivocal ruling we received from the tax court in September of 2018, decision we believe will be upheld on appeal. And the appeal hearing has now been scheduled. It will be held on March 4th this year, 26 days from now. We believe a decision could come from the Federal Court of Appeal this year. If we are successful on appeal, as we believe we will be, we will be entitled to a refund of about $5.5 million and a payment of the cost award for the legal fees incurred of over $10 million plus disbursements of up to $17.9 million. And let me remind you, while the decision applies only to the tax years 2003, 2005, and 2006, we believe there is nothing in the decision that would warrant a materially different outcome for subsequent tax years. Therefore, if we can resolve the matter for all years being reassessed, there is about $300 million of our cash and almost $500 million in letters of credit that could eventually be freed up, which would further increase our financial capacity. You will see from our outlook for 2020 that based on current uranium prices, committed delivery volumes, and our planned purchasing activity, from a gross margin perspective, 2020 could be a weaker year for us. This is a direct result of our deliberate, value-oriented strategy. We have made some decisions fully recognizing the cost in the near term because we expect over the long term the benefits of those decisions will far outweigh the costs. It's why we've shored up our balance sheet. Okay, and finally, we're going to turn to Cameco and how they're dealing with the nuclear power plants that they supply and how they're treating the ones that are treating them well. They're treating, they're giving them good terms. Uh, They also talk about ESG and also the supply risk that lies ahead in the future, according to Tim Gitzel, uh, with these low prices. Basically, he sees it as an unsupportable market dynamic, as you're going to hear. And so here it is. We operate in a dynamic market, and we will adapt our activities accordingly. We're confident in our ability to transition through this period and capture demand that will provide leverage to higher prices. The off-market conversations we're having with our biggest and best customers bolsters that confidence. Our Tier 1 customers recognize the long-term fundamentals. They want access to long-lived Tier 1 productive capacity from commercial suppliers who have a proven operating track record. They understand that from a security of supply perspective, today's prices do not reflect production economics. They recognize the first mover advantage gained from securing their future access to our Tier 1 pounds at the incentive price today, as opposed to where prices might be in the future. And we have some competitive advantages. We have significant idle Tier 1 capacity that's fully licensed and fully permitted that will be among the first pounds to meet growing demand in the market. We are an independent commercial supplier and provide our customers supply diversity from state-owned enterprises. With substantial Canadian productive capacity, we can help de-risk their future from trade policy exposure. And emerging is the focus on ESG matters. 
Increasingly, utilities are required to ensure their suppliers adhere to more stringent environmental, social, and governance performance standards. And I can tell you this is great news for us. We integrate sustainability principles and practices into all stages of our activities, from exploration to decommissioning. We have over 30 years of experience building a comprehensive program aimed at ensuring the support of the stakeholders with whom we work. And it's not only to the benefit of our customers. Since 100% of our products go to producing clean, carbon-free electricity, we are a growing part of the solution to the clean air and climate change crisis that the world is currently facing. On the sales side, as I said at the outset, I'm pleased to report that over the course of 2019 and to date, we have placed just over 36 million pounds under acceptable new long-term contracts. That more than replaces the volumes we delivered in 2019. These contracts provide us with some downside protection while still maintaining exposure to improving prices and are expected to provide an acceptable rate of return on Tier 1 assets for our owners. Let me be clear, we need more of them before a restart decision is made, but with more prospective business in the contracting pipeline than we've seen since 2011, we are confident those opportunities will come. We expect our conversations will lead to more contracts on the terms we need to support a restart decision. But keep in mind, the contracting process in our business is lengthy, so it may take this activity some time to show up in our committed volumes. We've been in this business for a long time, and we understand the commitment it takes to deliver long-term value. Current market dynamics are not unfamiliar to us. We've seen them in past cycles. Price is set by the most desperate seller, which leads to productive capacity being replaced by one-time finite supply. This is not sustainable. We've seen three different reports, WNA, UXC, and Trade Tech, all of which point to the growing uncertainty of uranium supply. These reports all recognize that current uranium prices are putting future supply availability at risk. Today, we believe the market is failing to send the appropriate price signals. As a result, we've seen a substantial loss in productive capacity that's not being replaced. We've seen the deferral of substantial productive capacity, and we've seen significant destocking. In fact, UXC's latest analysis shows that most utilities are at or below desired inventory levels. The discretionary market we see today is not sustainable. As I said earlier, the underlying fact is that the demand cycle is on an upswing, while the production cycle has swung down. And like occurred in conversion, the market transition will likely only be recognized once it is in the rearview mirror. However, if the uranium market transition takes longer than expected, thanks to our strategy, we will be positioned to meet the delivery commitments under our contract portfolio and still generate cash flow while continuing to preserve our Tier 1 assets. Our strategy is designed to reward those who recognize the fundamentals as we do and patiently support our strategy to build long-term value. We are a commercially motivated supplier with a diversified portfolio of assets, including a Tier 1 production portfolio that is among the best in the world. Our decisions are deliberate, driven by the goal of increasing long-term shareholder value. Ultimately, our goal is to remain competitive and position the company to maintain exposure to the rewards that will come from having low-cost supply to deliver into a strengthening market. So thanks for joining our call today, and operator with that, we would be happy to answer any of your questions. To 
And there you have it, Tim Gitzel, Camco's CEO and president. And uh, I thought that was a fascinating call. Uh, nuclear power as a savior of our climate crisis. Who'd have thunk it 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, some people probably did. Anyway, with that, if you'd like to share the podcast with your friends, please email them. If you know a student in geology, be sure to tell them about this podcast and the Northern Miner website. I thank you for listening each and every week. I hope you enjoyed that. Until next week, take care.